All right, well, let me pray one more time and then we're gonna get back into the book of Daniel. This is part five of our series called Devoted. And I'm just gonna tell you up front, we're shifting perspectives this morning. Everything up to this point has kind of been from the perspective of Daniel and his three friends trying to remain faithful and devoted in a culture opposed to, to God. They're in captivity, they're in slavery, and yet they find ways to remain devoted to the Lord and, and to stay faithful, and they watch him move miraculously on their behalf. But in chapter four of Daniel, the perspective shifts, and we now receive um, um, a story from the life of Nebuchadnezzar and from his point of view. And so we're gonna hear from the Babylonian king this morning. So I've titled this series, The Mad King. The Mad King, or this, the title this morning, The Mad King. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that this morning as we get into your word, God, as we look to hear from you, hear your voice, God, that we would be able to receive something from a pagan king from 2,500-ish years ago, over 2,000 years ago, this king and all his glory and all his wealth and all his power, he had one simple message to tell us. God, may, may we have awareness this morning of the pitfalls that we can, we can fall into. May we have eyes to see this, ears to hear it. God, we, we spend a lot of our lives with really cleverly devised ways to avoid truths that we often need to hear. God, would you outflank us this morning? God, would you cut through our defenses? May we hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Daniel chapter four opens with Nebuchadnezzar talking. And he's making it clear in the first few verses, he has a message that he wants declared to all people everywhere. Um, and, and specifically, about this revelation that he's had about God as this, this eternal God, this eternal king whose dominion can never be stopped. And he wants to share this message because it is not the perspective that he has had for much of his life. And so he's gone through something. I, I want you to hear this up front, how he introduces this, because he's about to tell us about, about a big moment of failure in his life and something incredibly terrible that he goes through. And yet he describes it this way in verse two. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. What a perspective. The difficulty that I faced that brought me to an ultimate place of humiliation, devastation, and loss. On the other side of that, this pagan king says, I want you to hear the good story of what God has done for me. That's, those are bold words. I've gone through some hard things in my life. I don't know that my perspective has often, if ever been, God, look at what good thing you have done for me. This is kind of one of those things like the category of like a severe mercy. That, that God will actually utilize difficulty, struggle, hardship 
as a merciful act to bring us to a place of awareness that we need to have. And so I hope we can be open to hear this this morning. So three basic things we're gonna look at. Warning, judgment, mercy. That's simple. Warning, judgment, mercy. Here we go, the warning. I want you to consider this question as we're moving through this category of the warning. How do you measure success? When, when you step back and just consider where you're at in life, it could be how do you measure success when things are tough, right? Like you're aware things aren't where you want them to be. Well, you're actually measuring success in that moment because you have in your heart, in your mind, some factors that equal life is good and successful. And when things are good, when you're feeling at a place of, of man, I, I feel good, I feel settled, I feel like things are great right now. Okay, well, what's on that list that's making you feel that way? How do you measure success? This is how this starts with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Life is good. Life is good. Verse five, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. I'm gonna give several kind of like what I'm calling them like beware moments in this warning phase that we're in right here. And the first thing to be aware of is don't assume that being at ease and prospering is a sign of success in God's favor. I'm gonna say that again. Be aware of the fact that, that we might, if we're not careful, that we can assume that when I am at ease and prospering, that it is a sign of success and a sign of God's favor. There is a huge gospel that exists in the American church that runs directly counter to what I just said. Being at ease and prospering is used as a measure of success. We encourage believers in their faith to use it as a measure of success. And we rubber stamp our choices and our activity in our church communities with man-made, I would even say American measures and mindsets. God must be pleased with what's happening here because look at my list of successes. Beware. Beware. We might be assuming that we've done something successful to get to that place. Often, the rich, the famous, and the successful, somewhere along the, the way, begin to believe that the reason they have been successful is because they've made all the right choices and decisions along the way. And if you think that's only a danger for like the super wealthy or the super celebrity that we've heard of, no, 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 that exists in the human heart. That exists in the human heart. And so right from the get-go, there is this, this, this juxtaposition. I'm at ease in my palace, I'm prospering, life is good, and yet something below the surface 
when my mind quiets. In fact, it only happens in my bed at night where finally a message can get through, where I've slowed down enough. In fact, God's had to interrupt my very dreams to get my attention that maybe something is off. And so in the dreams of the night, he's got this stirring. Now, friends, I wanna encourage you to look back. I don't know if you've heard each sermon we've talked about so far, but there is, there is a way to view the book of Daniel from a completely different light. I mean, purposely it happens here in chapter four, we're given Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, but it's really easy to look at this book and go, okay, you know, Daniel goes on his fast and then, you know, he interprets some dreams and then his friends refuse to bow down and they're thrown in the fiery furnace. And, you know, then, then Daniel interprets the writing on the wall or Daniel, see, you caught, you caught the fan, didn't you? That was great. I noticed that move. I don't miss anything. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I caught every move in the room. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. I got to sit right there and worship. It was great. Um, wow, I completely lost my train of thought. That also happened in youth group a lot, actually. Um, man, I have no idea where I am. Oh, okay, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a way to view the book of Daniel where we stop looking at it from Daniel and his friend's perspective and we view it as God's pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar. God allows Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, uses Nebuchadnezzar to take captive his people. And guess who comes into Nebuchadnezzar's presence? A faithful man of God, whose very life and choices stood as a witness against the very life and culture of Babylon. The first thing we see of Daniel, he chooses to fast. He chooses not to defile himself. And Nebuchadnezzar sees it because when Daniel's presented to him three years later, he stands out above the crowd. There's something different about this guy. The story goes on. This dream that Nebuchadnezzar is about to talk about, it's not his first dream. In chapter two, he gets a dream that troubles him. And it was a message from God to say, hey, in all of your grandeur and glory and your kingdom, and guess what? Future kingdoms of this earth that are yet to come, they all pale in comparison to me and to my kingdom. And in fact, what you even have right now is a gift from me. And it was meant to be a warning and to, to get his attention. And he missed it. He missed the message. Guys, it is possible to be in the, in the presence of God, in the presence of his people, and even to hear him communicating with us and to miss the point. We are experts at hearing what we want to hear. I wish I knew how to, who to attribute this quote to, but I've heard it said that people are not looking for wisdom. They're looking for corroboration. Boy, if that doesn't just summarize what exists on social media. I'm not even calling out a specific topic or a specific group of people. We just find the group of people that'll tell us all the stuff we wanna hear and then go, these are my people. And those people over there, man, what idiots over there. We're looking for corroboration. God sent him a man and he sent him a message. Then he twists what he heard from that dream, builds an image, makes people worship it. And this guy watched three people survive a furnace. And who was it that noticed there was a fourth man in the fire with them? 
Who saw that with their own eyes? Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one that pointed it out to to his subjects. He said, wait a minute, do y'all see that? We put three guys in there. I see a fourth and he looks like the son of God. Surely after that humbling encounter, he would change. Nope. Friends, if if you write nothing else down this morning, you need to write down or remember pride equals blindness. It equals blindness. See, one of the greatest dangers when we talk about pride is, man, we know how to spot it everywhere. Man, I can spot it a mile a minute in other people, just like that, easy to see. How often do we go, wow, I'm being really prideful right now. How often do we recognize where pride is governing us? Because we take control, we take charge. My perspective is right. Pride equals blindness. Jesus understood this and that's why he told a parable that's become known as the plank and the speck. Everybody wants to race to pick the speck out of their brother's eye. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's where you're missing it. And Jesus says, hold on, you need to slow down. You're blind. You're trying to see through the log, the plank that is in your eye. You're not even seeing the speck in your brother's eye clearly. And so what do we end up doing? In our blindness, we end up running around poking each other in the eyes. And no one's helped. No one's helped. We don't have an eye-opening experience by going, here's where you're wrong. (laughs) We do that and we pull back and like, dude. Jesus understood if we would deal with our pride, if we would face the reality of what's blinding us, we would realize how difficult it actually is to face and deal with pride. And then we might be able to help our brother who's got a speck in his eye. I might come in close with a little more gentleness, a little more humility, a little more understanding of what it's like to be missing the mark, of actually how painful it is to live life with stuff in my eyes, unable to see. Y'all ever had something get in your eyes? Man, it's painful and it's like... I can't even think straight till that gets dealt with. It's not like, oh, I'll deal with that at the end of the day. Let me just kind of keep going through the day. It's like everything stops. Yet, at a spiritual level, we can live for years with that blindness, stumbling along the way, wondering, why am I here? There's a, great, there's a great sign by my house right now. There's this uh, car wash place and they change out the sign. I should have had Bree type this on the board because I promise I'm not about to curse. Oh, everybody got really nervous now. But the sign says, don't blame others for the road you're on. It's your own asphalt. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it. I thought that should be a church sign. That should be a church sign. It was great. Just right down the road by my house. 
when we aren't seeing clearly, man, it's everybody else's fault. How often am I willing to go, God, maybe this stuff I'm facing, maybe the struggle I'm on, may, maybe this, this issue going on, Lord, maybe I'm, maybe I'm missing it. Nebuchadnezzar sure did, and I believe we're prone to this. So now he has another dream. So where does he go first? I want you to notice this. Remember the story up to this point, right? Now notice where he goes first, verse six. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. I mean, he's still calling them wise men, guys, come on. Right, have, have y'all been with me so far the first three chapters? How many times does he keep going to that well before he just goes, hey, I think there's a bro named Daniel that might have some insight. No, he makes a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. Oh, finally. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. Remember that. In, in all the brilliance that he saw in Daniel, he changed his Hebrew name that honored the God of heaven, the one true God, and put on him the name that honored one of his lesser gods and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. He's not even giving Daniel proper credit. The spirit of the holy gods? No. The presence of the one, capital G, true God. And I told him the dream. Now, think about this for a second. He's in the midst of something he doesn't understand. He's facing a big decision. He's facing a difficult circumstance, whatever category you want to do, whatever category you want to give it. He's troubled. And the last place he goes is to God. It's the last place he goes. He trusts his own brilliance. He can't figure it out. Then he starts going to the voices of the influential culture leaders, thought leaders of the day. Do you understand that's where he went? Like this would be like us identifying who are the most intellectual minds, who are the ones who understand the culture and shape how we view the world today here in our country. And I could call all of them in a room to get their perspective on this difficult thing I was facing. How often do we go to quotes and this guru and that guru and this, this person's little Instagram tidbits that give me direction in life. We go everywhere but him. He goes to God last. And then when he does, he misunderstands him. He's associating God with the gods of his culture. So I've got two more bewares for you. When faced with a big decision or a difficult circumstance, where do you turn first? Where do you turn first? Do you drive yourself crazy just running it through your head over and over again, trying to solve it? Anxious, worried, thinking surely I can piece this together? Or is the first thing we do to come to the Lord in prayer? To seek wisdom, guidance, counsel from people that we know to be faithful people who hear from God. Go, hey, I need another perspective here. Where do we turn first? The second thing I want you to be aware of here, don't allow the culture around you 
to define your image of God. Don't allow the culture around you to define your view of God. We're gonna talk about this more when we get into the judgment section in just a minute. I gotta keep moving here. But just, just recognize that he's still, after all these encounters with the Lord, he's misunderstanding who he is. He's misrepresenting his character. He's identifying God, the God of Daniel, with the gods of his culture. What is worshiped in his culture, he's placing upon the God of heaven. If you don't think we do that, I don't, I don't know that you've been paying attention. We associate all kinds of things with God that are not him. So the tree dream. He's got Daniel. He's finally gotten to the right place. Here's the man of God. I'm, I want God's insight. Maybe I'm misunderstanding who he is, but I've got the right guy here. And so he explains the dream to Daniel. He says, you can read it on your own. There was just a lot of verses. You can read it on your own. But he says, this powerful tree grew up. It grew taller than, than all the other trees. In fact, it rose all the way up to heaven. It was powerful. It was fruitful. It was abundant. And the whole earth was fed by it. Birds are nesting in its branches. Beasts are hiding in its shade. And all flesh was fed by it. Then this watcher from heaven sees the tree and comes down and declares judgment and cuts it down. Cuts its branches, rips off and scatters its leaves, scatters the fruit. Everything that's been finding shade in its shelter disperses and all that's left is a little stump. And that stump is wrapped up with bronze and iron. It's maintained. And, and in the dream, it shifts now and the tree begins to be referred to as he. And it says, he became like a beast for seven periods of time. I'm not gonna get into a ton of stuff trying to analyze how long that might've been. Could have been seven years, could have been seven months, I don't know. It was a, it was a period of time though. And as we'll see, it was a somewhat significant period of time. There's a good chance it was seven years. He's gonna become like a beast. So this is the dream. Big tree, lopped off, becomes like a beast for seven years. And verse 17 finishes like this. This is still Nebuchadnezzar describing the dream. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Do you need an interpretation of that dream? What's interesting is Nebuchadnezzar said, I can't quite figure it out. And his wise men who were told the dream this time, they couldn't figure it out either. You see that blindness? Willful blindness even, I would argue. This doesn't seem like that hard of a dream to interpret to me. And can I tell you, Daniel didn't view it that way either. He didn't see this as all that difficulty. He didn't say, okay, now, like past times, can you give me time overnight to go and pray and seek the Lord and I'll come back tomorrow? Next verse, or not the next verse, but another verse down, verse 19. Daniel's heard all of this. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. He got it immediately. I know what this dream means. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He's like, come on, man. 
I can handle it. Give me the truth. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you in its interpretation for your enemies. I want to give you a couple more bewares as we get ready to move into the judgment section of this morning. One more on the side of Nebuchadnezzar here. The purpose, the stated purpose of the dream, before the interpretation even comes, the stated purpose of the dream is that the living may know who really rules. Judgment is coming on the tree in order that those who are living may know who really rules. I would propose to you guys that we should be aware that we have a real problem with God's judgment in our culture. We have a real problem with it. But it is a truth we need to hear. We spend a lot of time trying to navigate around it, avoid it, ignore it, don't talk about it. When it is talked about, it's usually picked up by the people who like poking people in the eyes. Like when it does get talked about, right, it's used as a weapon. But we, we just need to realize our culture does not like the concept of God's judgment because what we like to do is stand in judgment of him. We like to define him for ourselves. And we like to say that in our intellectual moment that we should look back in history at some old religion and judge it in light of our more modern concepts. And so we stand in judgment of God instead of letting him stand in judgment of us. This permeates our culture that is apart from God and it's, it's beginning to permeate the church more and more. It's wrong because we don't like standing before a holy God who gets to call the shots and decide what's right and what's wrong. Beware that we have a real problem with God's judgment in our culture. Now I want you to consider Daniel's response to this warning, okay? Because there are gonna be times where we are in a situation to speak truth to power, to speak truth to brokenness. And I want you to pay attention to how, how Daniel approaches this. He is moved with compassion for the king. The king who captured him, enslaved him, renamed him, misunderstands him, ignores him till it's convenient, then uses him. That king, who he's hearing, is about to be judged that king, and Daniel has compassion for him. You know, we like to throw around the phrase like speaking truth in love. I want you to really consider, are we really willing to speak hard truth with deep compassion? Another way to put it is, don't celebrate the fall of your enemies. Our country loves to gloat. When my enemy gets it wrong and it shows up and it's on display, we gloat over our enemies instead of having humility and remembering our failures. 
or having some, some fear of the Lord and realizing I might have some still to come. May we not be too eager to gloat over our enemies. May we have a heart like Daniel that speaks hard truth with deep compassion. The second thing I want you to consider, it's kind of our last warning. Are we able to receive truth that has been spoken in love? Have I positioned myself in such a way where when people who love me and care about me are willing to stand up and speak truth that I need to hear, am I, am I open to receiving it? Man, guys, I struggle with that. When my precious wife needs to point some things out, man, my defenses go up. And it's not bad enough that the shield goes up. Usually a gun's following quick behind. Bang, bang, what about you there? Bang, bang. Are we able to hear truth spoken of? Guys, I know, man, I know what it's like to have a voice of criticism in your own head. I know that. I deal with that. I know what it's like to have people who don't love you try to tear you down. But don't let our own struggles and insecurities or the voices of the enemy cause us to miss the loving voice of our friends. The scripture says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You ever been faithfully wounded? I have. Some of the most important moments in my life have been friends who've been willing to faithfully wound me. Are we able to receive truth spoken in love? All right, let's move forward. Moving into number two, judgment. So Daniel shares the interpretation of the dream and then he pleads with the king to change course, to stay God's judgment. You can, you can read about that in the verses that follow. He interprets it, he makes it clear what we already looked at. This is about your pride and it's about the judgment that's coming. And oh king, will you please stop? Will you please change course? Will you stay God's judgment? Well, as, as, as often happens in God's mercy, he delays his judgment. A whole year passes and Nebuchadnezzar is standing in his palace at ease and prospering like he was a year before and he's surveying the kingdom. He's no longer troubled by dreams He's no longer concerned about warnings. A year has passed, he's forgotten, and he's surveying his kingdom. And in Daniel chapter four, verse 30, we pick it up and here's what he's saying as he surveys his kingdom. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? I thought about that scene in Castaway when he finally gets the big fire built and he's like, look what I have created. I have made fire. Anybody remember that? I'm the only one that's seen Castaway. I don't know. Pretty funny. I thought it was. Okay. I, I, I'm the only one that thinks these things are funny. And yet every week I work in some sort of dumb humorous thing that only I'm going to laugh at. I'll laugh at my jokes. You laugh at me. Deal? Okay. Perfect. Now listen, he's standing back Look at what I've done. Look what I've created. Verse 31. 
While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Why is this happening? So that pride would turn to humility. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. How long was the seven periods of time? Long enough to look like that. I called this sermon the mad king because undealt with pride and undealt with sin leads to insanity. When God is not put in his proper place, everything else is distorted. Why do you think we look around at the world and go, man, what a mad world. Man, this is crazy what's happening. Look at this insanity going on around us. Yeah. That's what undealt with sin and pride produces. It's what it produces. And we act more like beasts than men and women made in the image of God. Now, this isn't just about Nebuchadnezzar. Almost the exact same terminology is used by Paul to now the Roman culture in Romans chapter one, when he's laying out what is wrong with mankind and what's wrong with that culture. And he uses almost the same images and terminology. I'm just gonna read through this briefly. You can, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter one. You could start verse 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there and read through the end of the chapter to get the fullness of it. But let me give you a sense of it. For the wrath of God, the judgment of God, that's what we're talking about right now. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the blindness. It's the blindness. It's the willful blindness. I don't want to hear that. Verse 21. For although they knew God, boy, Nebuchadnezzar knew all about him. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see this? Paul's describing the same thing that happens to us when we reject God, when we don't humble ourselves before him, broken thinking comes in. Our minds are darkened. We don't think or see clearly. Look at verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God. You know what he's saying? Their glory. They exchanged their glory as image bearers. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
we become like the beasts. It's only by the wonderful grace of God that we've been made in his image that we're elevated to think the way that we think, to make the choices that we make, to be the pinnacle of his creation. But we reject him and in so doing, we reject ourselves. And this is the result. I, man, guys, I know this is heavy. This, is, this isn't some lighthearted message this morning. But guys, we've got to live with a sense of what we are in danger of ourselves and what we are surrounded by in a world gone mad. And it takes facing this stuff with some reality to even approach the place that Daniel did, where I can go, man, some hard truth needs to be spoken. But man, I am deeply broken and compassionate for people because it's heartbreaking to watch what happens to people separated from God. And so, as described here, the culture judges God just like Nebuchadnezzar does. They suppress the truth and we become darkened in our own thinking because we've chosen our human wisdom over the wisdom that comes from humbling ourselves before God. For time's sake, I'm not gonna read through a lot of the rest of this. It tells us in verse 28 that God gives us up to a debased mind. It's literally the same description as what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives us up to that. And Paul is, is very direct in all that that leads to. He is very clear about the sexual brokenness that follows. Don't believe the lie that it's an Old Testament thing that God is against sexual brokenness and sin. That is not true. Jesus addressed sexual immorality and all through the New Testament, Paul and others addressed it. And it is, it is made clear in this passage that it's a direct result of us not submitting ourselves to God and, and ourselves made in his image and asking him to define who we are. And it leads to broken thinking and broken behaviors. But that should break our heart. It should break our heart because it's not the only sin listed in this passage of scripture. He goes on to list all kinds of things that I dare say often describe the church house. I would encourage you, read through verses 20. You know what, I'm just gonna do it. I'm not worried about time. I'm gonna read this. Romans 1, 29 through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, coveting, malice, like I'm just angry at people. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They're gossips, like good night. How often has the church been known for just being a bunch of gossipers? They're gossips, they're slanders, they're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. See, this isn't only about the culture around us. Guys, this is where the church needs to wake up and pay attention. The people being held accountable in this passage are not just the people that operate under those behaviors, but the people who sign off on them and say it's okay. That should be a warning to the church that we stop misrepresenting evil as good when it's not. 
We misrepresent God and we do great harm to people who need to hear the truth so they could be set free. See, why, why do we do that? Are we being loving when we come alongside the culture and say things are okay that aren't? Are we being loving? I think we're being afraid. We're afraid of being labeled. We're afraid of being called something like a bigot. I don't think it's love. Maybe we're hiding behind a false version of God's love to cover our own sin. How about that one? The church knows that we're compromised. We live compromised lives. So why wouldn't I say that God's love is okay there to hide and cover my own sin? We've been hiding and covering our sin since the garden. Adam and Eve didn't run to God going, oh no, we've messed up. They tried to cover it up. In the same way, I just want to put it here, even though I've already addressed it in how Daniel approached this, in the same way, the church has got to be careful not to misrepresent God when we are speaking truth. Don't assume a position of pride in your opposition to the culture. <laughs> That's just another form of pride. I've seen so many church people in pride blasting people. Like, uh, I'm not gonna name names, but like I have seen in the last year a well-known, influential pastor in America use this passage from Romans chapter one to bash and slam and degrade this culture with zero mention of love, zero mention of mercy, zero mention of, of redemption. It was just declared as a bashing and labeling of the culture. Like this is Romans one. What happens in chapters two through the rest of the book? It's the most compelling vision of the gospel laid out in all clarity, God's heart to rescue and redeem. If we just wanna sit back in judgment and just have some weird spiritual pride accusing, accusing a broken culture, we're missing it too, guys. We've gotta have, have a sense of this. Okay, how about we get to some mercy? Does that sound good? <laughs> this is a lot of warning and a lot of judgment. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his mercy. Peter gives us some guidance here. First Peter chapter five, just a little portion of verse five. God opposes the proud. That's what we've seen up to this point. But he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This, this exists here in 1 Peter 5, 5. It's also in James 4, 6. It's a quote from Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 34. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, there's this really cool story in the Old Testament. God's people who've been called by him to go take enemy territory, right? So we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We're supposed to go there and take territory for God. And right at the cusp of going to do that, Joshua, the leader of the army, has an encounter with this, this soldier. And this soldier comes up, I wanna read this to you, Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. 
And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I believe this is an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I think there's several. One of the things I base that upon is no angel ever allowed themselves to be worshiped. And this guy was told to worship. Did the same thing Moses did at the burning bush. See, when God shows up, he's not picking sides. He's taken over. He's the king and it's about his kingdom. And the question for all of us is, do I bow down to him? See, God's very opposition, like Jesus is sword drawn, but God's very opposition to pride is also his pursuit of us. God was after Nebuchadnezzar. See, God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble, he opposes the proud that we might become humble. When James shares this verse in James chapter four, he follows it up by saying, after he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. He's pursuing us, even in his opposition. In fact, the word oppose there, God opposes the proud. It means to set himself up in battle array against us. He opposes us for our own sake. So how, how do we resolve this? Here's where God's mercy comes rushing in. Back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, now verses five and six. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Don't be like a beast anymore. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. Guys, the contrast of the naked insanity of the beast who's been exposed in all of their brokenness and lostness is now contrasted with being clothed and right-minded. Humility is the key. Friends, I don't know where this hits you or hits me this morning. I don't know that you're particularly struggling with pride or blindness to some things in your life. I don't know that, but I know we're prone to it. And I know we live in a culture that's saturated in it. And so whether the call this morning is to have our hearts grow more and more like Daniel's, to, to speak loving truth with deep compassion because we care about the brokenness of people, or maybe what we need to hear this morning is, I have been blind. And it's time for me to see. And the only way to see clearly is to humble myself before God that he might readjust my view and my thinking. I'm gonna leave you with these words and pray. This is the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven.
Instead of looking out at all he had done, he finally looked up. It took him losing everything, but he finally looked up. And what happened? And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and I honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's time that we stop questioning God and start letting him question us. At the same time, my reason returned to me. The glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar allowed himself to be humbled before God. May we all be the same. Daniel allowed himself to be used to carry a message of warning, of judgment, and of mercy. May we do the same. Amen? Amen. God, may we do that. May we live that way. May we humble ourselves before you. May we have love and compassion in our hearts for the broken world in which we live. May we truly speak truth in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.